0: That's impossible. You can almost hear him say it, can't you? The other apostles had told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas responded with this famous, or shall we call it infamous, assertion. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger and the mark of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will never believe." Poor Thomas. He's now remembered with what descriptive word attached? Doubting Thomas. But before we get too critical of Thomas's doubting, I wonder how you and I may have responded had we been there that night. Let's change the scenario just a bit. And I'm sorry for the blunt illustration, but I think it makes a point. Imagine that you get an urgent text message saying that one of your friends, let's call him Joshua, and my apologies to the Joshua's in the room, that your friend Joshua has been in a terrible car accident out on US-30. You rush over to the site of the accident and you discover to your horror that the text message is true. With tears running down your cheeks and with sobs in your voice, you watch your friend die. And you remain there as the coroner comes and pronounces your friend dead. And as the funeral director comes and takes away his lifeless body, the next few days are a nightmare. You can't believe it. How could this have happened? But a few days after your friend was buried, someone comes up to you and says, Hey, guess what? We just ran into Joshua. Some of us were having coffee down at the coffee shop, and who walks up but Joshua? We had a great chat. He even sat down and ate some food with us. Now, what would you be thinking at that point? What would you say? Maybe something like, that's not funny. What is this? Some sort of cruel joke? Dead people don't show up in a coffee shop and have something to eat. That's impossible. This changing the scenario just a bit make us less critical of Thomas's doubting. You see, we all live with this built-in belief that dead people don't come alive again. It's impossible. Death has such a strong hold that fight it though you might, eventually it gets hold of us. And we all can tell stories of someone who was told with his or her cancer, you probably have about two years to live, who lives five years. And we say, wow, they beat death. No, they postponed it. But eventually, death catches each of us. The mortality rate in our community and around the world is 100%. And once death gets its grip on any one of us, and it will, none of us can beat death's grip. This morning, I would like us to move ahead just a little over a month, six, seven weeks after the death of Jesus Christ after poor Doubting Thomas's infamous claim. Please join me in your Bible if you have a copy to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And as we find our place in Acts chapter 2, let me ask some questions. Where are we? What is the setting here? We're in Jerusalem. The city in which Jesus had been crucified just seven weeks previously. And here we are in Jerusalem, standing in the courtyard of the temple. The place of the crucifixion is just a few hundred yards from where we stand in the temple that day. It's about nine o'clock in the morning. And the crowd here on this Pentecost Day is thousands, thousands of people from all around the Mediterranean world, either ethnic Jews or religious Jews or both thousands of Jewish people crowding into the courtyard of the temple complex there in Jerusalem. As we join the crowd here in the temple complex, we realize that the crowd is gathered around an open-air preacher. Who is this preacher? Who is this man? He's none other than Simon Peter, the fisherman, now turned apostle. Many of the people listening to Peter preach that message that day had no doubt been there the previous month. And it's quite likely that some of them had been among that bloodthirsty crowd that cried out, crucify him, crucified him. And now they're listening to this preacher, Simon Peter. What is Peter going to say? to a crowd like this. Have you found Acts 2? Let me begin reading at verse 22. Acts chapter 2 beginning at verse 22, and we're going to read down through verse 36. Listen as I read the word of God. This is Peter preaching. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, With mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and now Peter's going to quote Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and will make me full of gladness in your presence." And then Peter continues his sermon. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and now Peter's going to quote from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What was Peter's amazing declaration to this crowd of thousands in the temple courtyard just weeks after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Peter just focuses right on Jesus, doesn't he? Did, Did you hear that? How boldly he focuses on Jesus Christ. What did verse 36 say, that last verse we read? Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him to be both Lord and Christ, whom you crucified. Now, friends, if we want to stand in the sandals of people that are there that day, I think we need to realize what a risky move this was by Peter. I mean, a lot of these people in the crowd had been there that day and had cried out for the death of Jesus, and now Peter, standing and talking to some of these same people about the death of Jesus Christ. You killed him with lawless hands, according to the plan of God, by the way. What a risky thing to say, and he's challenging them. They, they had this impression of Jesus Christ, this paradigm, this view of Jesus Christ that he was some sort of blasphemous imposter. And yet now Peter says with great clarity, with great boldness, this Jesus whom you thought of as some sort of blasphemous imposter, God the Father has spoken, God the Father has declared, God the Father has shown that his son Jesus Christ is both Lord and Christ the Messiah. Now, how's Peter going to support that? How's Peter going to support this bold claim that Jesus is no imposter, in fact, he's both Lord and Christ? Peter gives three different supports to that assertion that Jesus Christ is Lord, he's Lord, he's the Messiah. He talks about the miracles that God did through Jesus. He calls them wonders, signs. Secondly, talks about the outpouring of the Spirit. We didn't dwell on that part of this chapter, but there's been an outpouring of the Spirit upon the followers of Jesus Christ, and a lot of people witness that. But there's a third way that Peter supports this bold assertion that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, and that is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning, this Resurrection Sunday, this Easter Sunday. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look at verse 24 again. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. I think sometimes we read the Bible and we forget what it would have been like to have been there. So it's not always possible, but as much as my feeble mind will allow me, I often try to imagine what would it have been like to be there that day in the temple courtyard. And so here's this fisherman-turned-preacher making this bold assertion that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And did you notice how no one argued with him about that? Now keep in mind that Jesus was crucified literally just hundreds of yards from the temple, just outside the city walls. Not only that, but he was buried in the tomb that would have been in the same proximity, And among all these thousands of people gathered to hear Peter preach that morning, any one of them, any group of them could have said, hold on a minute. We know where Jesus' grave is. His body's still in there. They could have said that. They could have checked it out. But you know what? They didn't need to because the tomb was empty and they knew it. The tomb was empty and they knew it. No one's going to argue with Peter on that part. And yet... To me, a more fascinating reason that Peter gives here that captures my attention isn't just that Jesus rose from the dead, but why. Why did Jesus rise from the dead? Did you see the end of verse 24? Look at it again. Let it soak in your heart. Because it was not possible for death to be held by it, to be held by death. Now, that's a logic-defying assertion to say, Death couldn't hold him down. Now, we hear that, and if you think about it for a few minutes, that is logic-defying. We tend to think that death is so strong that no one can be death. That death grabs us and never lets us go, and that's true for all of us. And yet Jesus somehow escaped the chains of death. Now, kids here in the room, do you think death somehow just got kind of distracted and Jesus sneaked out of the tomb? Do you think that's how it happened? No, thank you. I don't think so either. Jesus didn't just sneak out of the tomb when death was looking the other way. Jesus confronted death. Jesus fought death and won. (laughs) And Peter says it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. For the first time in the history of the human race going the whole way back to the death of the very first human who died, death has always been the victor. Once death gets its ugly tentacles around anybody, he holds that person in death. No one has ever been able to wrestle death and win, until now. But now death has been confronted by someone who is more powerful than death itself someone who can beat death, and that Jesus rose from the dead as our victor, our champion. I know we have some C.S. Lewis lovers here in the room. He had a way with words. C.S. Lewis said this one time, Jesus forced open a door that had been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation, a new chapter in cosmic history. Now, friends, what was the first song we sang this morning? Is that testing your memory? We began by singing one of Wesley's hymns. And in that hymn, Mr. Wesley wrote, Fought the fight, the battle won. Alleluia! Death in vain forbids him rise. Alleluia. Christ has opened paradise. Alleluia. Death, in vain, forbids him rise. Death can say, Jesus, you stay here. But death met the more powerful Lord of life, Jesus Christ. But the question I want us to wrestle with this morning isn't just the fact of the resurrection, but why. Why was it impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus Christ? Why was it vain? Why was it empty? Why was it powerless for death to try to keep Jesus down? There's at least four reasons. Maybe some of you can think of a fifth or a sixth, but let me give you four. First, because God the Father keeps his word. We can trust the promises we read in the Old Testament, for instance. God keeps his word. Did you notice what Peter did in his sermon here? What did he do? What was he quoting from? He was quoting from the Old Testament. That's the Bible we had. And he quotes from Psalm 16, and later he quotes from Psalm 110. And he explains this quote from Psalm 16, that when David talks about God didn't leave the body to decay in the tomb, David wasn't speaking of himself. Because David did die, and his body was placed in a grave, and that tomb has been commemorated by Jewish people for centuries. His body's rotted in the grave. It decayed, corrupted. So when King David wrote this, King David was not talking about himself. But King David had been promised by God that he would have a descendant one day that would be the good king, that would be the good shepherd, the leader of the people. And David prophesied, Peter says, David was prophesying that one day the descendant of David, King Jesus, would come. And this promise of God that his body would not lie in the grave was to be true of Jesus. And that promise of God was there for a thousand years until it was fulfilled that day outside the walls of Jerusalem. We can trust God to keep his promises. That's one reason why Jesus couldn't stay dead because God promised that he wouldn't stay dead. We can also believe in the resurrection because Jesus keeps his word. We can trust the New Testament prophets. Prophecies of Jesus. Let me just read to you from Luke chapter 18, and we read back into this story, and we think the followers of Jesus were a bit dull, but I doubt we would be any less dull had we been there. Luke 18, 31 through 34 says this, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that has been written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be, listen how detailed this is, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. And then Luke adds this tagline, but they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Now move ahead just a couple of weeks and listen to what Jesus explained to his followers, his disciples. That night of the resurrection, the very night of the resurrection, Jesus startled his apostles in that room and he said this, and I'm reading now from Luke chapter 24, 44 through 46. Luke 24. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That's exactly what happened. That's exactly what Jesus said would happen, and that's what happened. So why can't Jesus stay dead? Why couldn't death hold him down? Because God the Father keeps his word, and we can trust him. And God the Son keeps his word, and we can trust him. Briefly, there's a third reason why Jesus couldn't stay dead, and that is his very character as God come in the flesh. Have you ever slowly read and meditated on John's prologue, the introduction to John's gospel? It is so rich in truths about Jesus Christ that I think we should read John chapter 1 over and over and over and just park there for a while. And one of the things that John wrote about his Savior, our Savior Jesus, is this. He said, in him was life. In him was life. The night before the crucifixion, Jesus made this famous Assertion, he said, Some of you can finish it with me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the life. Peter, a little bit after this passage we're looking at today, in chapter 3, verse 15, he gave Jesus this this title, this moniker. He called him, listen to this, Peter called him the author of life. The author of life. That it is a second member of the Trinity that gives life to all things. How could death hold down the very author of life? I I came across this hymn by Martin Luther. Next year it'll be 500 years since he wrote it. And this hymn by Martin Luther goes like this. I'm not going to sing it for you because I don't know the tune. And even if I knew the tune, I wouldn't sing it for you. Thank you, Larry. Luther wrote this, It was a strange and dreadful strife when life and death contended. The victory remained with life. The reign of death was ended. Holy Scripture plainly saith that death is swallowed up by death. The sting is lost forever. Hallelujah. Death, listen, death could no longer keep Jesus within its tomb then a pregnant woman can keep a baby in her womb on the day of delivery. It will happen. And Jesus was delivered out of the tomb exactly according to God's plan. Those are three reasons. Because we can trust the word of God. Because we can trust the word of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the very author of life. But there's a fourth reason I want us to focus on right now. Why could death not keep its grip on Jesus? Let me ask you some questions and you kids that are here, I invite you to participate in these questions and answers. Why do people die? Now I'm not thinking of the immediate cause of death. A lot of times we think, why do people die? Well, because he was sick or or she was in a car wreck or, or it's just old age. I'm not thinking of the immediate cause of death. I'm asking, why does death even exist in the first place? Why does death even exist? What did God tell Adam and Eve? If you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. If you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. Did Adam and Eve eat the fruit? And they died later on. They sure did. Paul said it this way. In, That famous verse in Romans 6.23, you can finish it with me. For the wages of sin is death. So death exists because sin exists. And the only way to get rid of death is to get rid of sin. The, The only way to get rid of death is to get rid of sin. Death will exist as long as there is sin. The debt of sin must be paid. The debt that we owe God for our many crimes against Him, the High King of Heaven, our crimes of treason against the God who made us and owned us, that debt will have to get paid. And and all through the Old Testament, God wanted His Old Testament people, His Old Covenant people to understand that sin is costly. It costs life. Once a year, the high priest would go into that back room of the the temple called the Holy of Holies. Only he was allowed back there, and only once a year, and only after all these ceremonial cleansings and having killed animals and and taken the blood into that back room. And in that back room, there was one piece of furniture. It It was a holy box, the Ark of the Covenant. And over that Ark of the Covenant, there was this metal plate, this pure gold metal plate with with cherubim facing each other. And that that metal plate was known, it's translated sometimes mercy seat, the place of atonement, or more specifically, the place of propitiation. Now we don't use that word propitiation very much. But it has the idea that there has to be payment made. That We owe God because of our sin. And that God righteously, not a fly-off-the-handle sort of anger, but God has a a steady, controlled, predetermined wrath against sin. Something's got to happen. Something has got to happen to to satisfy God's righteous requirement, to satisfy God's holy judgment against sin. And every year the high priest would go back into that place of propitiation and he would, he would sprinkle blood on it. Blood on it, that is another annual reminder that, that sin causes death. And all the generations of the Old Covenant that had to be repeated every year. And we haven't even talked. We haven't even talked about the thousands upon thousands of animals died between that day each year as people made personal sacrifice for their sins and the sins of their family. The Old Testament is full of reminders of the cost of sin. As these substitutionary animals died, Time after time after time. And yet when Jesus died on the cross, he was the ultimate sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. And this incalculable debt we owed God because of our innumerable, immeasurable sins was paid that day by the death of Jesus Christ, the bloody death of Jesus Christ on the cross. How do you know? How do you know that God the Father was satisfied with what Jesus did on that cross? How do you know? Kids, how do you know that what Jesus did on the cross worked? How do you know? Adults can help with this one. because Jesus rose again because Jesus emerged alive that was living proof that what he did on the cross worked that what he did on the cross satisfied all the holy requirements of God the Father that all the righteous requirements of God were satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ and as living proof that what Jesus did on the cross worked he came alive again The resurrection is very much part of the gospel message. John Newton, most well known for writing the hymn Amazing Grace, also wrote other things. In this one poem he wrote, this particular stanza warms my heart, stirs my mind, boggles my heart, Newton wrote, let us wander, grace and justice join and, and, and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, listen to this line. Newton said, Justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. Listen again to Newton's line there Justice smiles and asks no more. When Jesus Christ died on that cross for all the sins of all of his people from all the ages, God the Father smiled and said, it is enough. It is enough. There is no more required apart from the death of his perfect son, Jesus Christ. And this living proof That all was satisfied, Jesus arose. So let me ask you what difference does the resurrection of Jesus Christ make in your life? For those of you who have already put your faith in Jesus Christ, what difference does the resurrection make in how you're gonna live today? How you're gonna live tomorrow? How you're gonna live a year from now? Well, there might be many answers to that question, but let me give you just two today. One is, Jesus' resurrection brings us peace with God. That's how the Apostle Paul begins the fourth chapter of Romans. And he even says that we are justified by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Justice smiles and asks no more. Let me be bold pastorally here. I see Christians sometimes who live with this seeming weight of guilt on their shoulders. And they, they, they keep away from the throne room of God because they think, He's frowning at me. He's frowning at me and, and God's holy finger is pointed in my face reminding me of all these things I've done. And they live with a sense of dread and Failure. Anxiety. My Christian friend, God is not frowning at you today. He is smiling at you, not because you've had a good day. He's smiling at you because his son paid your price. Your debt is paid. And the resurrection of his son is like your receipt that your debt has been paid in full. And now God the Father is smiling at you, welcoming you with open arms. And that you are at peace with God the Father because of Jesus Christ. And his resurrection is your assurance. You can put your head on your pillow tonight knowing that you are at peace with God. And the way you know that is that Jesus lives. The resurrection of Jesus Christ brings us peace. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ also brings us power. Power to persevere. If we thought this life was all there is, I can understand why we would despair. Despair. But we know that this life is not all there is. That this is not the last chapter. That eternity awaits us. A new resurrection awaits us. And that just as Jesus rose from the dead, he will raise us from the dead on that great day. If I know that, if I believe that, if I anchor in that, it gives me the power to persevere on the hard days. Paul. And 1 Corinthians 15 said this, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul says... Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings us not only peace with God, but it brings us power to persevere. But I realize that a group this size here in person or listening online, that there are people here today who we care about deeply. Children, teens, adults, people of all ages, people of all backgrounds, who have not yet put their faith in Jesus Christ. And for my friends here today who are yet without Christ, I'm asking you, what is on your heart right now? What question should you be asking what question should you be asking right now I think you should be asking the same question the people in Jerusalem asked Peter that day we haven't read that yet but let's read verses 37 and 38 now when they heard this they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the Apostles Brothers, what should we do? Can you picture this? Peter, preaching this sermon about Jesus Christ, this man who had been intimidated by a servant girl just weeks before, and now the Holy Spirit has empowered him to preach like he's never preached before. And as he preaches about Jesus Christ, people just start calling out, calling out from the crowd, What should we do? What should we do? And my encouragement to you, my unbelieving friend, is that that question comes out of your heart today. What should I do? What should I do? How did Peter answer that question that day? Look at verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He said, repent. I don't know how many times I read that, and it didn't dawn on me how incongruous that could have sounded to the people in that temple courtyard. Repent. Repent. I mean, think about it, friends. That crowd in the temple courtyard, this was not a bunch of rabble-rousers. This was not a bunch of hell-raising pagans. These were religious people. These were good people. And Peter stands in front of this large group of religious people, good people, and when they cry out, what should we do? He says, repent. And the word in the original here has the idea of a change of mind. But but I want to add to that. It's a change of mind that is so radical. It brings a change of life, that you start seeing things so differently than you did before, that you turn around, you go a different direction. And so here, Peter's preaching to this large crowd of religious people, and when they cry out, what should we do? He says, repent. John Piper said it this way, and I I found his explanation clarifying Pastor Piper said, These are religious people that Peter's talking to. They are moral people. They are worshiping people. They are people who know hundreds of verses in God's Word by heart. And he's telling them that their minds are totally at odds with God. They claim to know God. They claim to love God and worship God and follow God. And Peter says that they are diametrically opposed to God, they are anti God. Now, this, this is going to be challenging for some folks. Pastor Piper continues, the test of whether they are anti-God or not is not whether we say, yeah, I believe in God, or whether we say, we know God, or love God, or serve God. The test is whether we embrace God's endorsement of Jesus. That is what cut Peter's hearers to the heart. They saw that in their zeal for God, they had been against God. This is so utterly important for us today because in our live-and-let-live pluralistic society, hardly anyone would dare say to another person, your claim to know God, in fact, you are anti-God. You are against God. Why? Because you do not embrace God's endorsement of Jesus as the only Savior. Jesus is the test of all true knowledge of God. Are we with God and his endorsement of Jesus by raising him from the dead? Are we against God? So let's go back to Jerusalem. Let's go back to the temple courtyard. Here are thousands of people listening to Peter preach this message. And when the Holy Spirit begins to work on them, when the Holy Spirit begins to convict them, and they cry out, What should we do? the first word that Peter gives them is repent. Do you know why that was the perfect thing to say to them? Because in their thinking, in their mind, they thought, I'm a good person. I'm religious. I come from a long line of religious people. And I'm sure that God will accept me into heaven because I might not be perfect, but I'm a good person. I'm a religious person. I can quote all kind of Bible verses. And a lot of people thought that they would be right with God, that they were on their way to heaven because they were good people, they were religious people, and they knew a lot about the Bible. And Peter, motivated by the Holy Spirit or guided by the Holy Spirit, looks at that religious crowd and says, Repent. You've got to change your whole perspective. You need to change your paradigm on how to be right with God. You're thinking you can be right with God just by being a good person, a religious person. Turn around. Turn your thinking around. Abandon that wrong assumption. When I talk to people about being right with God and they say, Well, I'm a good person, I always like to ask the same question How good do you have to be to be good enough for God? How good do you have to be to be good enough for God? It's not better than 51% of the people. It's perfection. And none of us is perfect, not one of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, it wasn't long after this that Peter stood in front of a smaller group, a group of about 70 theologians. And this fisherman turned preacher Talk to that room full of theologians. Listen to this. He said, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In our pluralistic society, and I'm sure there are some advantages of being in a pluralistic society, but one of the pitfalls is this. Most people assume each person can find his own way with God. And everyone has a right to try to build his own road to God. Some people try to build their road to God this way. Other people try to build their road to God that way. The problem is none of the roads that we build to God ever get there. But you see, God has built a road to us. There is no other name under heaven. It doesn't matter where you go in this world. God is not a tribal God. Jesus is not a tribal Jesus. He's the same for everybody all around the world for all the ages. There was no other name under heaven given to man. Biblical salvation is not man's attempt to find a road to God. It is God building us a road, Him building a road to us. And He sent His Son to live the life we should have lived and didn't, to die the death we should have died and didn't, and then as living proof that what He did satisfied raised Him from the dead. And so Peter tells this group, repent. Change your whole view of how to be right with God. It's not by your religion, it's not by your goodness, it's not by your sincerity, it's not by your philanthropy. The only way to be right with God is through Jesus Christ and Him alone. Repent. And be baptized. Be baptized. Getting baptized is a public declaration of what happened to you internally. And as we practice immersion here in our church, next time we have a baptism, there's one coming up. Watch how we do it. Not that there's something magical about the water, but it so clearly depicts not only the water washing away our sin, it doesn't literally wash away our sin, but it pictures that, but it also pictures when we put someone under that water, it's like we're burying them. There's a reason for that. It's a symbolic way of saying, I'm dead to my old way of life. Uh, I'm dead to my old way of life. I, I don't want to live for that anymore. I don't want to live for those old idols of my heart any longer. And thankfully, we bring them back up out of the water. And that's like picturing resurrection, new life. And I have a new life in Christ, and I want to live for him. And so Peter tells this crowd of religious people, when they said, what should we do? Repent and be baptized. And if you keep reading the story, it's just astonishing. We're in that crowd. A lot of them turned to Christ that day. And the apostles probably scattered all over that part of Jerusalem. There were pools, various parts of the tabernacle complex, right outside the temple complex. Those guys were busy. They baptized several thousand people that day. Now that's a baptism. And so if you're here today without Jesus Christ... I'm lovingly challenging you to ask that question. What should we do? Or as I heard it from my father, a godly trucker who loved to talk to people about Jesus, I used to hang around and my dad was talking to people about Jesus and he used to always ask the same question, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? And that's my question to you today. If you're here today and you came into this room still not in faith, still not with Jesus Christ, my loving challenge to you today, my plea to you today, is that today you repent. Of any of these ideas you had of finding a way to God apart from Jesus Christ, do you find Him to be your Savior? And then you say, I'm glad to live that way. I'm glad to go public and show people I'm dead to my old way of life. I want to live for Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us, and I want to just say I'm glad to stay afterwards and talk to any of you. I know my fellow pastors, Pastor Mark, Rod, Jake. We're all here today. Pastor Tom's gone. Your friends have brought you today. Your parents, your grandparents who know Christ. Talk to somebody today. If you have more questions, and we're glad to show you the way of Christ, let me pray for us as the worship team comes.